Um, all right, we've been in a series as a church um, over the past about a year and a half, uh, believe it or not. We've called it Jesus, Con, or King, and we've been going very slowly through the Gospel of Mark. I looked on the website the other day. Uh, this morning's sermon is our 56th sermon uh, in this series. We're a new church, and, and lots of people uh, want to know with, with us as a church, you know, what are some of the values that, that, that this church is based on? Well, again, there's lots that I could say there, but let me say this to you. One of the greatest values that we hold to is that everything we do in the life of our church, we want it to be consistent with what this book, the Bible, the Word of God, teaches. And we believe that the way that we do that is by being faithful in something called expositional preaching. It's opening up the Bible. It's going through it uh, line by line, verse by verse, and, and letting the Word of God speak to us and applying that to our lives. Let me tell you, I've been amazed in the past year and a half of some things that we have walked as a church or some pastoral matters in the church that I've been aware of where I've thought, man, I just, I just wish that we could do some teaching on this. I wish we could kind of rearrange things to do some teaching on that issue. And then I look at the preaching schedule, and sure enough, what's coming up in the next week or two in the series is exactly what we've needed to hear. God is incredible this way, and that has served us so, uh, in so many different occasions as a church um, over the past year and a half as we have been in this series. Uh, guys, just before I continue, I, I, I do want to highlight Matt Luard, who many of you uh, know. He's sat up here in the front. He heads up our preaching team. Um, he, he's so helpful for me in the preaching that I bring. A lot of what I have the privilege of saying at the front, a lot of it comes from Matt's thoughts and ideas and him wrestling in Scripture and us having conversations about this. I'm just so proud of this guy. Uh, God, yeah, can we give them a round of applause, please? Okay. Yeah, it's very, very well-deserved. And, and friends, please listen to me when I say that we are a stronger church because of this, okay, and because of Matt and the way that God's hand is on him. So um, this is our final talk uh, in, this, in this series. Next Sunday, we're actually going to look at the topic of rest, and then we're going to apply it for a month. So we're looking forward to that, all right? That's where we're going over the next couple of weeks. Okay, we are in Mark 16, verse 14 to 20, the sprint uh, to the end of the series and the end of Mark's gospel. Here we go. The words will come up on the screens here beside me. If you don't have a Bible with you, just feel free to look up there. After he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not, li- they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover." So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Let's pray. Father, I'm just, I'm just so thankful this morning that you're, that God, that you are a speaking God. And uh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for scripture. Thank you that you've not chosen to stay silent to us. But God, thank you that as we open the Bible even this morning, thank you that we don't do this on our own. And I I don't just mean that in the sense of others around us in this room, but that the Holy Spirit of God is helping us, bringing to life these words that we're reading, that we're considering this morning, applying them to our own lives, to our own hearts. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you 
have been with us throughout this series, that you've highlighted things to us in the life of our church, things that we've just so have needed to hear, wisdom from God, not from me or Matt or any others that have had the privilege of standing at the front, but God, this is, this is your wisdom. This is what you are saying to us through your word. Jesus, I thank you that you are the good shepherd. Thank you that you love your flock. Thank you that you love your children who are gathered here uh, this morning, those that you have made a way to be adopted by God. Jesus, we just give you all the glory. We say that, that, that we want much to be made of you in the rest of our time here this morning as we look into these verses in the Bible, as we enjoy communion together afterwards, as we worship you in song. Uh, Jesus, all of this is for you. Jesus, there is, there is no one like you. All of the saviors that we pursue in our city, in our nation, in the West, in the world, all of the other things that we chase, all of the other false gods, Jesus, they, they, they do nothing. In there is no one like you, King Jesus. We love you. We worship you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, just come and have your way. Speak to us and guide my words right now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said, here we are. We're at the end of Mark's gospel, and, and we're kind of left with this question, where do we go from here? That's maybe a question that you've asked at some points in your life before. There are different cultural references that would have that exact language as well. Alicia Keys has a song called, Where Do We Go From Here? The Temper Trap have a song that that's a major theme in themselves. Those of you familiar with Martin Luther King, in 1967, he wrote one of his most famous works called, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? Well, we're kind of left with a similar type of question. Where do we go from here? We've been in this for about a year and a half. We've got 56 sermons in the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through this very slowly, letting this speak to us. But where do we go from here? What, what are we now, in light of all of this, in light of everything that we've learned? And if you've not been with us uh, through this series, again, just get on the website and feel free to catch up there. But those of you that have been with us through the whole stretch, where do we go from here? Well, Jesus answers that question very, very clearly in these verses. And in doing so, he essentially highlights that there are two ways to live out the Christian life. And I was, as, think, as I was thinking about this this week, I was actually quite fascinated just thinking about the very structure of the Gospel of Mark. Now remember Mark, Mark is kind of the scribe, right? He's writing down uh, the words and the story from uh, the Apostle Peter, from St. Peter. But at the very beginning of the story, when we're first introduced to Peter, he's not St. Peter, he's, he's Fisherman Peter, and he's called by Jesus, as are the other disciples. And we're really getting Peter's story as we move through here. But even in the structure of Mark's gospel, we have 16 and a half chapters of Jesus calling these disciples and his ministry starting and going and doing these incredible miracles and journeying with these men and others who are following them, following them healing the sick, healing the blind, people that have something called leprosy, a disease that was just rampant at that time, Jesus cleansing them. Jesus raising to death people who were, or raising to life people who were dead, doing these incredible, incredible things. And as he's doing this, he's teaching all the way through it. And people are going, we've never heard anybody teach like this. Even, even the religious leaders, even others who are kind of in the know, they're saying, man, this, this, this man, he teaches like he has authority. Like, who is this guy? And as we're going through Mark's gospel and Peter's story in this, it's really, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Every single thing is about Jesus, who he is, and what he has done, 
and what that means for those who are following him, and what that means for us today, 16 and a half chapters. And then we get to these verses that we're looking at this morning where Jesus gives this commission, and then we get into, and then what do we do? Where do we then go from here? But we don't often live out our Christian faith like that. Those of you that are Christians in the room, maybe you can relate to this a little bit. It can be very easy as we go about our Christian lives, and I have very personal experience with this myself, where we kind of turn it in reverse. We turn it upside down. And what I mean by that is this, is that we spend essentially 16 and a half chapters of what we should do and how we should be living out the right sort of Christian life and what this all means for us and putting ourselves at the center of the story and then really half a chapter about Christ. I don't know if any of you kind of can relate to that a little bit. Maybe you get down on yourself because of things, if you're a Christian in the room, things that you find yourself doing, things that you're struggling with, maybe something that you thought about somebody else, something that you did to somebody else, whatever it may be, and you can really focus yourself and you spend much of your Christian life, 16 and a half chapters of your Christian life, looking inwards. Only half a chapter looking outwards. Only half half a chapter looking out at Jesus Christ himself. I want the very structure of Mark's gospel actually to preach to us here this morning. That we have 16 and a half chapters on who Jesus is and what he has done. And remember, we're getting Peter's story through this. Look, Peter is, is, is the master of, look, I don't have this perfect. I don't always get it right. We love Peter. We can relate to Peter. So many things that Peter has done as we've gone through this story over the past year and a half, we're kind of going, yeah, I get it. When he did that, when he said that foolish saying, when he was rebuked by Jesus for that, yeah, I get it because I kind of relate to that. I would think the same sort of thing. But still, Jesus in his grace draws him back, draws him back, draws him back. But then we finally get to Mark chapter 16 and about halfway through, and then we do have this application of what we are then to do. Well, in light of all of this, where do we go from here? What is it that we are to do? Well, Jesus says it very clearly in Mark's gospel. He says this in verse 15, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. The gospel is one of those terms that we can sometimes feel a little bit confused about. Again, I'm I'm in many cases this morning speaking to the Christians in the room, but I don't want the rest of you to tune out if you're still exploring this. But for Christians, sometimes we can just think of the gospel, and that word means the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. It actually, the root of that word finds its beginning kind of in Old English of of God spell. It kind of finds its form in, in a good story, but a God spell Okay, this story that is just so captivating. That's where our word gospel comes from. A story that is so captivating about Jesus Christ. We just look at him. We're just in awe and wonder. But we can think that that good story, we can think that the gospel is only applicable at the point that we give our lives to Jesus. Have you responded to the gospel? That's the question that we're often asked, you know, as we're, as we're considering Christ. Maybe some of you here this morning, maybe that question is applicable to you. You might be sitting there thinking, well, what, what do you mean by gospel? Keep listening. I promise you, I'm, 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 I'm going to get there. I want you to hear the gospel this morning. But for Christians in the room, we can think of it in that way. We can think of it as, well, the gospel is just a thing at the very beginning. 
It's a thing that I initially responded to, but now I kind of move on beyond the gospel. I remember when I was on staff at a church back uh, in the UK, I remember something coming to me in the mail. As as someone in church leadership, I often would get uh, mail about different events that were kind of happening in the city or in the nation and different seminars that were going on. And one of the ones that came through as I opened an envelope was a course that was being offered. I don't remember by who or where, but the course was called Gospel Advanced. I thought, Gospel Advanced, what is that? Like, what, what is gospel advanced? Like, what is beyond the gospel? What, what do we possibly graduate onto beyond the gospel, where the, where the gospel just kind of becomes this very elementary thing, this, this kind of beginner's course? It's kind of like the training wheels for Christians, but then we move on to much more, you know, lofty intellectual pursuits. But I know in my own life it can be easy to think that way and to think, well, no, I know, I know, the, I know the basics of the Christian, but now I need to move on to the really, really advanced stuff. I've had the milk, now I really, I really need the meat kind of that way. I really need the stuff that's going to really, really sustain me, surely. Surely I can't just be sustained. I really need to go on to the other things. A New York pastor named Tim Keller says it like this when it comes to us thinking that we kind of go beyond the gospel. He says, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z. Z or Z? Where are the Americans in the room? Am I right? Z. Oh, my goodness. Well, my one American friend, Emily, is very happy right now. Okay, I've acknowledged her. Okay, the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom of God, but the way we make progress in the kingdom. Church, are you hearing this with me? This morning, the man or woman in this room who has known a relationship with Jesus for the longest time in the room here this morning, have you, as I do at times, fallen into the trap of thinking that we move beyond the gospel? At what point did the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, of who he is and what he has done, at what point for some of us did that stop being enough? At what point did we think that there is something better than the gospel? You know, Paul, as he's writing his letter to the church in Rome, he he introduces himself, and he says that he's set apart for the gospel of Paul. No, he says for the gospel of God. The gospel of God. This is a story that God has written. The gospel is God's property. It's something that God has done himself. The gospel needs to stay central in that question of where do we go from here, we go and we proclaim the gospel. Friends, the gospel must ever be on our lips in terms of proclamation. Maybe you've heard that quote. It's often attributed wrongly to St. Francis of Assisi, but the quote goes something like, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. The reality is he never actually said that. It didn't say anything even close to that, but we in our very kind of non-confrontational and, and, and kind of postmodern, you know, everything, let's give an airing to absolutely everything, that seems quite attractive to us. Well, no, let's just live this out, but let's not actually say anything. Let's, let's just kind of model it. Now, please hear me. It is important that we live it out, that our lives also tell a gospel story. I do not deny that at all. But Jesus very clearly says here, go into all the world and proclaim. One way we can understand that word proclaim is preach. Now, I'm up here. I'm I'm a preacher. Others are able to come up in the front, and they are preachers in this church. But in some degree, every single person in this room who has a relationship with Jesus is a preacher. And what a privilege that is. 
We are to go into the world and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, of who he is and what he has done. I want to tell you three things that the gospel teaches us in terms of how we reach our city and how we lead lives that glorify Jesus Christ. The first one is this, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest equalizer. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest equalizer. We, we live in a culture that is all about equality, and that's not a bad thing. It's something that people fight for. It's something that people give their lives towards pursuing. And I would say in its right context, that is a good thing. That's a godly thing. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest equalizer, but not necessarily in the way that we might think. Where we think of equality in, in our own culture, we think of it as, as, as an elevating up equally of people. But the gospel tells us that we are all equally in need of saving. All of us, every single one of us. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. All, everyone in this room have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The the gospel puts all of humanity on the same footing. None of us in ourselves have a right to be exalted above another. None of us. And Christians in the room, any time that you or I as a follower of Jesus myself think that we have a right to consider ourselves higher than those around us, whether it be brothers or sisters in Christ or whether it be your neighbor or a colleague or somebody in the city you know who doesn't know Jesus, any time where you've thought, well, I, no, I, I, have a, I have a right to be thought of more highly I'm more moral. I'm, 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 I'm more of an upstanding citizen. I'm more righteous than myself. No. No. It's a denial of the gospel. It's a denial of Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. The gospel is the great equalizer. Now, our comparisons against those you know, in our city, maybe in our family, or our colleagues, they can make us feel pretty good sometimes, don't we? You know, when a colleague just like shoots their mouth off in a crazy way about somebody else, we can kind of sit there and be like, well, I, I would never do that. I would never do that. Or somebody in our family says something that's, you know, just kind of a sharp attack against somebody else. Oh, well, no, I, I, would, I would never do that. Or perhaps a better example is when we read the news. We go on the CBC website, or we go online, and we read a newspaper, and we read about crimes that are committed in our city or beyond, and we can be left with that thought of, well, I, that's not me. Man, where, where did that person go so wrong to go and commit? Oh, I would never. I would never do that. That would, that, would, that would never be me. And we can get very caught up in these human-to-human comparisons. But the reality is, is that God is not interested in our human-to-human comparisons in any way, shape, or form. The comparison that God is interested in is us to him and his holiness and his righteousness and his perfection. So in that sense, the gospel is a great equalizer because we all fall short. None of us. And no human, in, no human in history, with the exception of one man, and his name is Jesus Christ, with the exception of him and him alone, we all fall short. We have all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. Number two is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest liberator. You know, there's something freeing, there's something liberating about coming to the place of realization that you can't do this on your own. Can any of you relate to that a little bit? Like even, even when you've been striving and trying and trying and trying to pursue something, thinking if I can just maintain control of, of, of this relationship, of this workplace dynamic, of this health situation, whatever it may be, but then coming to the place where it's like, you know what, this is beyond my control. I can't do it. I can't do it. There's actually a freedom that can come in that. 
This weight of responsibility that we put on ourselves can sometimes be lifted off of us when we realize that it doesn't all rely on us. There can be a liberating feeling that comes with that. The gospel tells us that we all fall short of God's standard and that we're all in need of a Savior. And that means that we don't need to live under the pressure of trying to do it all ourselves. We don't need to live under the pressure of trying to keep all of the law perfectly. What I mean by that is if you go through this book, particularly the first five books of the Bible, often referred to as the books of the law. And I've said this a few times from up here, you know, Christians in the room that go every January 1st, a few of us do it, don't we? January 1st, I'm going to do Bible in a year, and we get going, and we hardly get through the first five books because it's tough reading, and we're reading the law of God. And we, man, and, and it's so offensive as we go through it. Oh, God, surely you don't mean that. And how do I apply that to the culture I'm in? Oh, God, surely you don't mean that. God, you're just wrong, or this has got to be a translation thing, or, or clearly somebody has gone wrong in this. But really what's going on in our hearts is that we are offended because the law has convicted us, because we're going through the law ourselves, and we're going, well, if this is true, I'm guilty. And friends, that's the point of the law. It's not God trying to be cruel. It's God saying, fine, you think you know how to be God yourself? You think you know what holy living looks like what, yourself? This is what holy living looks like. And we all fall short. We can't do it. But the law was never meant to save us itself. But my goodness, as Christians, how we try to let the law save us. How we try to let good works save us. How we try to let moralism and, 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 and moral ambitions save us. And as Canadians, we're particularly good at this because Canadians are good people. I mean, we're really good people, aren't we? The world look, I mean, right now the world looks at us with, with stars in their eyes. We are, we are, we're good people. So surely the Christians in Canada, we must be the best people. Surely that, that, that must be us. But no, when we read the law, when we read God's law, nope. <laughs> we're not. We're all deserving of death. One of the things I walk most regularly as a pastor is folks, and I'm not pointing the finger, I do this myself in my own life, folks that have a relationship with Jesus and think that they're keeping all of the rules, doing all the right things, but there's something that they want of God, something that they're asking him for, and God doesn't seem to give it. And this attitude comes in, but I deserve this. Surely I deserve this. Surely this should be mine. And when we take on that attitude, we're forgetting the gospel. The gospel tells us that we deserve death. We do not deserve blessing from God. We do not deserve grace from God. Because if we deserved it, it wouldn't be called grace. It would be called something else. It's called grace because it's freely given to us. It's given to us in something that we do not deserve. It's something that God does himself. We are deserving of death in ourselves when we look at God's law. We are the criminals. We are the bad guys, no matter how much we might like to think otherwise. But the gospel is the greatest liberator because it brings us to that place where we realize, I can't do this all on my own. I can't do this all by myself. I need help. And my identity that was once built up in, in, in being a really good Christian, doing all of the right things. And I, look, I know that dance better than most of you. Okay? I spent so much of my life doing that. And this identity that just pursuing and pursuing and having everybody around me tricked and kind of spinning all these plates, but then seeing them start to come crashing down. Finally, coming to the realization of, you know what, this doesn't all depend on me. It's not about my performance. It's about Jesus' performance. It's not about how I do in comparison to the law. It's about how Jesus does in comparison to the law. It's about his faithfulness in it. It's about his obedience in it. That is liberating. That is freeing. 
And some of you here this morning, maybe even some of you who are guests with us here this morning, I don't know, you've not known that in your Christian life because you're still pursuing good works as a way to earn your salvation. The gospel says it's not going to work. Jesus has earned your salvation for you. It's made freely available to us by faith. We come in on his record, on his record of righteousness, on his perfection. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 to 31 says this, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus. The him there is a reference to God. Because of God you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Christians, we have no reason at all, we have no right at all to judge others around us. The gospel being the great equalizer and the great liberator, we have no right to judge others around us. You have no right to look at your colleague or your neighbor and think that you're better than they are because the reality is in terms of morals, you might be worse than they are. So don't boast in your own performance. Don't boast in your own good works. If you are in Christ, it's because of grace. If you're going to boast, boast in him. Boast in what he has done. Friends, it's no wonder that our city and that our nation, so many people so struggle with Christianity because their first experience of Christianity is Christians telling them what they're doing wrong. Like, put yourself in their shoes. Would that not be off-putting for you? It certainly would be for me. The gospel must be the first thing that we proclaim. It's not about what they do or about what we do. It's about Christ about who he is and what he has done. And then in light of that, in response to that, as an act of worship, living lives of holiness, knowing that there's grace for the times that we get it wrong because we are found in him. And number three, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest story. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest story. I didn't realize this till much later on in life. I, I grew up in a church and remember sitting in children's church and reading or singing all of the stories, Father Abraham had many sons. I do the little dance for you, but uh, it wouldn't go very well up here. All of this stuff, right? Hearing all of the you know, stories of, of, of Adam and Eve and, and Noah and Abraham and Moses and King David. I could go on and on and on and failing to realize that they're all pointers ahead to Jesus Christ. All of these stories that we come across, they're all glimpses of the gospel that are fully realized in Jesus Christ. Noah and the ark, this flood coming, the judgment of God coming to the world. And God saying to this one man, I want you to build an ark. Crazy, crazy. It's a weird story. We can get all romantic about it. It's just a weird story. I want you to build this ark, and I want you to go into it with your family. And these animals, two by two. What's going on there? Where is God's salvation by grace coming to Noah and to his family? Because they deserve it? No. Because God said to Noah, go and do this. It's by grace that they're being saved. What's that a glimpse of? It's a glimpse further ahead that those who are in Christ, Christ as the ultimate ark, are saved from the judgment of God. Then we move further ahead and we look at the story of Moses. And Moses being told, I want you to go, I want you to speak to the Pharaoh and, and tell him to let my people go. People of God who are held captive in Egypt, they're slaves in Egypt. And friends, that's our story. We are them. We are slaves to our sin. There's nothing we can do in ourselves to be made free of it. We need a rescuer, but God breaks in and he sends that rescuer to go and to do battle against these other gods, to do battle against the ones who are holding God's people captive and they are set free and they are brought into the promised land. Their story is our story. 
Then you keep going on and you read of others. Jonah, I could tell you about that. You talk about King David. They are all glimpses of the gospel that are fully realized in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. The gospel is the greatest story. And he's woven it into each of our lives. He's woven it into our world. Friends, as you look to proclaim the gospel, look for hooks in our culture. Look for glimpses of the gospel in our culture. Use those as 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 uh, pathways, as doorways to tell your friends, your family, your neighbors about the good news of Jesus Christ. And as I wrap this up right now, what I want to do is I want to tell you something that happened to me even last week on a flight where I just felt God speaking to me about this as an example, but I hope that this serves us as a church. So here we go. I was, I was on this flight with Josh. We're, we had connected to Heathrow. We're flying back to Ottawa and uh, Josh has sat beside me, and he's watching some, like, shoot 'em up movie with car crashes and all this stuff, kind of crazy stuff going on. I'm the sophisticated one, right? So I'm sitting there, I must find a good documentary to watch right here, right now. And uh, so I go through, I find a documentary, it's called Ada's Choice, all right? He actually watched some really good films, don't worry. But I found a documentary called Ada's Choice, and it's a very, very moving uh, documentary, and it's about a woman who uh, at the end of World War II, she was 20 years old. She was a Polish Catholic. Her name is Ada. And uh, she wasn't Jewish herself, uh, but she was still living in an area of Poland uh, that became under uh, Nazi control, and she was sent to be a domestic worker during the war. But when the war ended, a concentration camp that was in northern Germany became liberated by the Allies, and that concentration camp, the grounds of it, became a place where people who had been held captive were then being cared for by the Allied troops. And, and they were free, and they were celebrating their freedom. And throughout the course of this, Ada went on, and she had two children, now, at that time, she, because of the, 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 uh, the, the heritage, lineage of, of the father of one of the children, one of her children was sent to Palestine and was able to be raised as a Jew, as part of the, uh, the uh, I'm not sure I'll get the word right, re- repatriations, is that the word I'm looking for in this, in terms of what was happening after the war. She knew that that son was going to be able to be raised very, very well. But there was another son that was sent and was actually, actually ended up in Canada actually ended up in Winnipeg. Now, she had contact with her son that was in Palestine. When he uh, was reaching an age where he was having his bar mitzvah, I believe 12, she went over and was able to attend his bar mitzvah. And then when he was 16, uh, that son that was living in Palestine was able to go to Montreal where she was living and spent two months with her that summer in Montreal. And all through this time, this son did not know that he had a brother. And this brother who was in Winnipeg and was growing up, was adopted in Winnipeg, grew up not knowing that he had a brother. But through the wonders of technology and everything online that you could do with ancestry these days, these two men in their 70s are put in contact with each other. And there's very moving uh, footage in this documentary where these two brothers are actually able to meet. And they meet in the Winnipeg airport. It's very moving, absolutely incredible. Tim Horton's sign in the back. Everything about this is just wonderful, all right? <laughs> Now, the son that grew up in Canada is visually impaired. He grew up, he had a phenomenal career as a Paralympian. Uh, he, uh, he was married, he has children, he lived a very, very good life. But he never knew that he had a brother until he was put in contact with his brother by somebody, and that brother then flies over from what is now Israel and meets his brother in the Winnipeg airport. But in this conversation that's happening in the documentary, the, the brother on the right, who's the older brother, says to the younger brother on the left, I've, I actually have a relationship with our mother. I know where she is. Do you want to meet her? 
And the man on the left, the younger brother, says, I, I, I've never known where she is. Never known that she's even existed. And he starts, it's, it's the most moving footage. She, he starts, this 70-year-old man starts going through this thing where he's, he's, he's talking to the documentary filmmaker who's interviewing him. And he's saying, I, what, when I meet her, what's she going to do? Like, is she, is she going to accept me? Is she going to acknowledge me? Is she going to love me? Like, wh- why, was, why was I not, brother, why was I sent to Canada myself? So many questions, 70 years of questions. But anyway, in Montreal, off they go, and they go into this care home in Montreal where Ida, who's now well advanced in years, I'm assuming, uh, well, she'd be 90, actually. If they were 70, she was 20 when she had her first child, so she'd be 90 or early 90s. And they're there in that care home, and they walk around the corner, and there's this moment where she meets her son for the very first time since giving birth to him. And he meets his mother for the very first time. And what he does is fascinating, is he walks up to her, he's visually impaired, he uses a stick, and somebody's helping to guide him, and he gets down on his knees, and he puts his head straight into her chest. And he's just in tears. And the mother is looking at him, and she's saying repeatedly, Shepsil, that's his name, Shepsil, my son, Shepsil, my boy, Shepsil, my son, Shepsil, my boy, I love you, I love you, Shepsil, my son, Shepsil, my boy. And I'm watching plane beside Josh with all the car crashes and everything else going, and I'm there trying to stay somewhat composed on this flight somewhere over the Atlantic, and I'm watching this documentary, and the reason me so much is because I'm watching this going, I relate to this. Part of this is my story in God. I was separated from God. There's nothing that I could do on my own to find him, to seek him out. But praise God for an older brother. Praise God for the relationship with your heavenly father, and it's through me. I'll put you in contact. That's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. He's put us in contact with our Heavenly Father. He's made a way for us to have relationship with Him. And oh, we can be so crippled by fear. How is He going to respond? What's He going to do? Is He going to accept me? Is He going to love me? Is He even going to acknowledge me? He does what this dear elderly woman does. He embraces us. Put your head on my chest. Let me hold you. My son, my daughter. My son, my daughter. All the while, Jesus Christ, the perfect older brother who's made this all possible, is looking on. His heart is just glowing. It's all been made possible because of him. There's a sweet photo of the three of them together. And I love how the older brother is off to the left, kind of, kind of out of the scene a little bit. I'm not saying that's what it's like with Christ. But he, the older brother, is just relishing this moment of restoration between the younger brother and the mother. Friends, that's what God, that's what, this is what God is like in a, in, a, in, a, in a glimpse. I'm not saying this is a perfect gospel story, but it's a, it's, it's a pointer to it, isn't it? It's a glimpse of the gospel. Friends, this is what we need to proclaim. We've been separated by God, every single one of us, because of sin, sin that we've committed, sins committed to us, things that make us unholy. We've been separated from God, but our perfect older brother, Jesus Christ, has come. He's lived the life that we could never live. He's made a way for us to have that relationship restored. He went to the cross in our place. We've been in that over the past few weeks in this series. 
He paid the price that we could never pay. He went to a lens to put us in contact with Heavenly Father that we could never do on our own. But he did it not by getting on a flight, not by bringing people together at a carol. He did it by laying down his life. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is what we must proclaim to a city who I believe actually wants to hear it. One of the other moving moments in, in that film was this, this younger brother. He was saying, he said, everybody look, longs for a relationship with their mummy. He used the word mummy. He's <laughs> a 70-year-old man. I just, he's recognizing something that God has put in the human heart. I think he's right. Something in all of us that desires this. But it's only made possible fully through Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to invite the worship band to come up. Friends, we're going to sing. We're going to worship this great and glorious God. To the left and the right of the stage, there are communion tables. If you're here this morning and you have a relationship with Jesus, we'd love for you to enjoy this meal uh, with us this morning. The bread represents the body of Christ broken for us on the cross. Should have been us up there, but it wasn't. Jesus went there in our place. The wine represents Jesus' blood being poured out for us so that we could have forgiveness of sin. And not just forgiveness of sin, but adoption by God as sons and daughters that he loves. How is that all possible? It's possible because of Jesus going to the cross in our place. And that's what we remember when we take communion. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you have good relationship with your home church, come and enjoy this meal with us, even if you're a guest here with us this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we love that you're here. This is why this church started, is, is kind of for that reason, that you would be here if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. We love that you are here. We do believe that this is a meal for those that have surrendered their lives to Christ. We don't say that to make you feel awkward or anything like that. We'd love to chat with you after the service if you have any questions at all. But friends, can we worship him? We have many reasons to. (laughs) Let's worship him together. Let's stand and worship.